Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode of the podcast. Obviously, I'm Hanny and I'm your host of the Find Your Feet podcast. This has been a wild journey over the last 12 months and we've had some amazing guests to share with you. But I have to admit today, I was blown away by the discussion that I was fortunate enough to have with Charlotte and Josh. Now, Charlotte and Josh have traveled a long way around the world already on their world tour project. And it's basically just a two-year climbing adventure where they're going to 18 countries, uh, six continents, and pretty much seeking out the best climbing that they can find around the world. I did a little bit of homework, although I didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this podcast because I'd heard they were in Hobart and it all happened on a bit of a whim. But when I was doing my research on Charlotte, I couldn't believe how much of a beast this young girl is. French born and still racing for up until very recently, been racing for France in sport climbing. Charlotte uh, has achieved so much in her short lifetime. She's already a multiple youth world champion in the sport of climbing. She's also a world senior champion in the sport of climbing. And in this 27-year journey, she's also been able to finish a PhD in material science for nuclear chemistry and water filtration, which she finished last June prior to starting on the world project with Josh. She's climbed in 150 areas around the world, over 580 routes under her belt, and I believe she is very much the yin of their relationship. Josh, an American, uh, has been an electrician by trade and had a slightly different route into the world of climbing. He actually returned to that climbing world in 2008, throwing himself 100% in after putting down his tradey tools. He is a member of the U.S. bouldering team. He is a coach of both the youth and university American climbing teams and was the uh, mastermind behind the Dark Horse series in Boston, a very famous climbing series. So to sit in the room with these two and to learn more about their story and what makes them tick was for me a very humbling experience, but also one that has got me so excited. I found myself eating my lunch and Googling the sport of climbing. Maybe there is an opportunity to add yet another uh, bow to this fun and playful life that I'm fortunate enough to live. But I just need to uh, take a moment to not only thank you all for listening, but to thank my fantastic team in at the Find Your Feet retail store and behind the scenes at Find Your Feet who provide the support not only to you in our community, but also to me to be able to host this podcast. As you can see, we don't have sponsors on this program yet. And as for as long as we can continue for Find Your Feet to do its thing and supported by you in the community, then I would love to keep it this way. We also speak a lot about Tasmania in this podcast and I have done over many of the previous episodes and if you would like to come and experience what we have on offer here in Tasmania, feel free to check out our Find Your Feet tours and yes, come for a run here with us in our beautiful mountains. Alrighty, so without further ado, I'd love to get into this incredible, inspiring, motivational podcast with Charlotte the Beast and Josh. 
Here we go. from like I understand is, is America home these days or is it you you both are still sort of um, sharing a relationship across the oceans between France and America because Charlotte you're French originally yeah. and America yeah, yeah Josh so yeah. yeah can you tell me a little bit about what's brought you here and where you come from um well uh long story short we met about Five years ago in Boston, where Josh used to live, I did an internship then, um, and then I moved back to France, and I lived there for four years, so we had that long-distance relationship, but um, Josh kind of quit his job to spend more time with me, so that was <laughs> nice, and uh, I finished a PhD last June in France, and after that we were planning a big trip, so right now we like to say that we live, we live in the world. <laughs> uh, we leave where we are. Um, yeah, started big world tour um, last September. Uh, started with Greece, then Serbia, Australia. We just came back from New Zealand, and now we're in Tassie for a couple of weeks. And I absolutely love that when I was trying to do a bit of harried research because this obviously this podcast was on a bit of a whim, and it all came about very quickly. So for me, like I feel like I haven't done as much preparation as I would normally do. But I was spending a bit of time on your website and I love the fact that you've separated Australia from Tasmania because <laughs> I um, recently I, I did a little bit of the, the World Sky Running series. So it's just big mountain running. Um, like you guys climb up the rock walls and do your thing. I run around them. And <laughs> I was entering this event and the organisers wrote back to me and said, like, do you want to, which country do you want to race for? Do you want to race for Australia or Tasmania? And I just, I loved it. And I actually wrote back and said Tasmania. And literally when I got over there, yeah, on, on the entry sheets, it said that I was from Tasmania. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. So some of us feel like we are a little bit um, down under, down yeah. under the down under. Yeah, you're down yeah. under the down under. Yeah, when we first planned the trip, it was like, oh, we're going to 18 countries. But like, there's Australia and Tassie in there. But we're like, okay, so 18 destinations. Yeah, okay. But it feels like, I mean, it doesn't feel like another country, but it's an island. So, yeah. you know, like it's definitely has its separation and different feelings. Yeah, it's a unique place, Tasmania. And um, I'm getting more and more excited, like the more we, um, you know, see travellers coming down, the, yeah, we're seeing a lot more people sort of jump over that ditch between Australia and Tasmania and come and visit and I think, you know, realising we are quite unique down here. But you guys have only been here, what, 48 hours, you were saying? Yeah, yeah, 48 hours. We, um, yeah, we arrived in the evening one day, and, and the next the next day we were already out at the organ pipes climbing. You know, we, like, picked up the, the guidebook when we were in Melbourne and just, like, on the whole flight here, just flipping through the guidebook for the climbs and getting psyched and inspired and scared looking at it and being like, wow, there's so much to do. We have two weeks. Um, and yeah, our first 48 hours have been great. We haven't had oysters yet, but we're, <laughs> we're aiming for lunch today. Yeah, well, <laughs> you'll be driving back to your little Airbnb place past the oyster sheds here. So yeah, it's a wonderful time of year down here and like fruits and they're you know, amazing. There's so much produce everywhere you go. 
and wonderful places to explore. I feel like I could sit here for hours and tell you about all my little secret haunts that Graham and I found over the years growing up here. But uh, I don't even know where, like, I actually don't even know where to start this podcast. I mean, first and foremost, I just have to turn to Charlotte and say, you you are a beast. I mean, you're, <laughs> you are 27 years old um, and you're already like a youth world champion, a senior world champion. You finished a PhD in material science for nuclear chemistry and water filtration. Uh, you have an absolute love of the natural environment and doing your bit to support it. Uh, and you've climbed in 150 areas around the world uh, and 580 routes. And I just actually can't quite comprehend <laughs> how you've possibly fitted all that into 27 years. Um, yeah, just how? Yeah, have you got any response to <laughs> Any response? Um, <laughs> uh, it's been busy life, but I think it's the way I'm used to and the way I like it. Um, my dad um, was big outdoor, still is a big outdoor person. Doing a lot of alpinism and traveling, and uh, used to be in the um, paragliding French team, doing World Cups and traveling for that, and traveling for mountaineering too. Um, so it's I kind of grew up with the education of you can do a lot of things if you just enjoy doing them. So all my youth when I was in school, even all the way up to my PhD, I was doing those intense uh, school programs, and in the same time training and competing for the French team and traveling the world and I've been lucky that my teachers um, and like managers always understood that I have that passion so I could go away from school uh, but because I was like uh, not good at school but I wanted to do good so I would work all the time in planes, uh, in the car, and whenever I had time, uh, they knew that my passion wouldn't take away my good results in class. Mm-hmm. So I've been lucky to have that freedom of being able to travel when I needed. And it, yeah, you're right. It is so much about having those right support networks around you and the rocks in place from which you can play from. Yeah, and I... I must admit my recollections of those final years of school trying to make it into medical school and you're missing weeks and weeks and weeks and you've, you know, the final year. But I think when you set your mind to something, you can really do it. And I, I, I think I read through that through your journey is like you must have just been so determined to kind of keep all the balls in the air and you did. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's, it's a good balance because like real life or school like teach you and brings a lot for your climbing and training and traveling mm-hmm. and reverse. So every time I would be climbing, it would be my time away from school and I would be in school, it would be my time away from climbing and training. So mm-hmm. it was a balance with definitely it's ups and downs, but it was good overall. And then taking that into a PhD would have been taking that to a whole new level of, I guess, discipline at some point to, to like, I mean, some people really even just struggle to complete the PhD, let alone to do that while competing on the world stage and the, like, I guess, the ambitions that you had with your climbing. Yeah, yeah. The only time I 
actually had to make a decision between like PhD and climbing was in the last six months of my PhD because it was when I was writing the thesis and I knew that I would not have time to train properly. Mm-hmm. So I took a decision to just put the competition on the side, but I would still have the climbing part. It's like there were two different things that could take me away and have that freedom and forget a little bit of the manuscript. And So you're just saying that you were able to keep like the playfulness but taking the pressure of the elite competition off the agenda for a little while? Yeah. Yeah. Was that like an emotionally hard decision for you to make or was it just a natural one that just came to you? It was it was natural for a lot of reasons. Um, well, one of them was the PhD, uh, which I had to finish and then I wanted to finish it and I really wanted to like put all my energy into that. It was a very cool challenge. And on the other hand, I, I've been injured. Um, so competition-wise, it was not as enjoyable because mm-hmm. I couldn't give my best and the third reason is um, after my PhD like a year leading to the end of my PhD Josh and I were planning that big trip together and I knew that by traveling the world I wouldn't be able to follow the circuit anymore so like those three reasons were easy way to say all right I'm I'm done with competitions is that done with competitions as in not now or not ever like which line are we walking now (laughs) good question um we'll see what the future holds um for the first time ever climbing has been uh, selected as in the olympics so that's quite a big challenge okay i didn't know that yeah it's gonna be for 2020 oh wow so we'll see where motivation is and where if we're still traveling maybe um that could be a good motivation to come back into competition for that challenge. That's a pretty good, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a pretty good motivation, if any. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting because I feel like maybe our journeys are a little bit parallel and been trying to come to an understanding of where competition lies for me as well. Because I like like you with a love of climbing, like I love what I do in my world. But competition, you don't need competition to do it and to enjoy it and trying to kind of understand when that chapter closes and is it a final closure of that door into competition or is it just a not now and then when you come back into it, like how do you um, address the the sort of internal pressures that you put on yourself because you know what level you're capable of and yeah, I don't know, it's a hard world to negotiate, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But Josh, spinning it around a little, have I understood that your journey has been sort of almost a little bit opposite towards Charlotte's? Like you worked for quite a long time as an electrician in trading and then realized that that wasn't for you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was was interesting because I I climbed before I was an electrician. I I climbed when I was a youth and uh, I was the only climber in my family. Like my Mm -hmm. whole family and extended family had never... I really even heard of it until. So how did you get into it if they didn't introduce you? Um, I got into it. I, I visited my uncle uh, who lived in the mountains at a ski resort in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, he was a chef there, not a climber. He's a skier, uh, but there was a climbing wall at the uh, at the resort that he worked at, mm. and I climbed on the wall. And the guy that was running it was like a cool like ski 
ski bum slash climbing <laughs> instructor and he was cool and I liked his vibe and he uh I climbed one of the routes and he he was like oh man you're you're natural at it you should take this harness that you're wearing and go back to Boston and try to try to rock climb and I was like yeah that guy's cool I want to <laughs> I want to be like him or I just want to wear this harness more so I went back to Boston and I started climbing more and joined a climbing team and met that was just like opened up to a whole nother world that I was unaware of that existed and my parents too and so how old were you I was 14 14 pretty yeah. much started climbing um and then did some competitions met a lot of awesome people and a lot of great coaches and then just went cold turkey on it and, and stopped climbing and um because it wasn't it didn't seem like it could go far as a job and um, at the time there wasn't a lot of um money and coaching and route setting and there weren't a lot of climbing gyms back uh, 20 years ago 15 years ago that at there that there is now so it was just like not an uh, a lucrative option you know like it wasn't a career choice for me mm. so I I would I um, picked up a trade as an electrician and, and did that for eight years and never climbed for six of those years wow okay um and then yeah I was just like from one job site to another eyes being open to that part of the world and the construction sites. And it was just like, um, good, good, but it was a very negative feeling as well. It wasn't just, it wasn't a lot of positives coming out of it. Just positives from within you or positives in that whole environment where you just, Um, did you just feel like you weren't being true to your journey or? Yeah. I mean, it, I don't want to like stereotype electricians and like construction sites and things like that, but there is like kind of a, an aggressive approach to, um, I don't know, like being like manly and like doing like, Mm. I don't know, like how you drink your coffee and like, you'll get, you know, like if you don't drink your coffee in a good way, you're like a sissy, you know, (laughs) it's like that kind of like feelings. And I was always like going to like crazy job sites and working nights and like never really having a life. It just really felt like I was just living to work. Mm. Um, and I always want to just work so I can live. And that's kind of how I like made that choice was like work was super busy. I was um, just like not enjoying it. And it was like a layoff time coming through and I would, they were like, gave me the choice to lay off. So I took the layoff and I found a climbing gym that it was just about to open in my hometown. It was like perfect timing. I was like, Oh man, I'm just going to go here and I'm going to like volunteer all my time and just get back into climbing. Um, I wired some lights for them. I started root setting with them. I put down flooring. So I started getting into the climbing world just by working in it again. Mm. Um, And now here you are. So you've also (laughs) competed on the World Cup series. Mm -hmm. You've won medals for America in the American National Championships and at a a world event. No. Is that right? No. No. But you you compete on the U.S. World Bouldering Team. Yes. Yeah. So... I imagine, I mean, I, I actually haven't yet been to America, like the 35 countries I've been in, America was never one of them, and oh. I know, oh, um, <laughs> on the agenda, okay. um, I'll just have to be really nice to both of you, um, but I imagine, and from what I know from friends about the American climbing scene, it's pretty fierce competition, is that correct? Uh, it's a big country. Yeah. Yeah, and there's... There's a lot of mountains. There's a lot of um, opportunities for climbing and um, a lot of ways to get into climbing. So yeah, it, it's 
it's fierce. There's a lot of really talented climbers and mountaineers that, that come out of the States. Yeah. Um, as far as, like, we don't have a lot of um, climbers that are um, big on the World Cup circuit. Um, the World Cup circuit is very European, I would say. It's mm. more, you know, it kind of started there, and a lot of the events are held in Europe and, and Asia. So for Americans, it's quite a bit of traveling and sacrificing money and time to go and do these events. So we don't have a big um, World Cup climbing team that... Mm -hmm. that um, that does very well, I guess, that gets the results as, yeah. as some of these other countries. But the, the funding and all that is very different, and the structure yeah. is very different between France, which I've seen very in-depth compared to our yeah. system. So self-funded for you when you go to compete over in Europe, yeah. predominantly? Yeah. yeah. And then Charlotte, are your teams funded or... I'm just kind of curious in because I mean I my sport of orienteering like coming from Australia even though we can occasionally get some great results on the world stage like very much so we're predominantly a self-funded nation and there's a lot of self-sacrifice mm. in there to juggle the balls. Yeah, uh, pretty much we have different levels of um, being part of the French team. I'd say the elite one is. Um, so there is a selection at the beginning of the seasons to do the first couple of World Cups. It's all founded, travel, lodging, mm -hmm. food, um, all those. And for like going after, let's say, the first quarter of the season, you have to have done like the final in a World Cup. So it's pretty uh, elistic. That's a yeah, word. elitist. <laughs> elitist. Yeah. Um, so there's that part and there's also another part where you could go if you reach certain criterias mm -hmm. and results, uh, but then you go by the money in your pocket. Okay. Like, yeah. yeah. And then what is the what is the world climbing scene like in that sport world of climbing? Is there prize money? Is there a lot of prestige? Do you have professional athletes who are doing this like literally full time, or is it still sort of like a growing amateur sport that hasn't quite sort of made it into those leagues yet? It's kind of it's kind of gone up, yeah, and then down, yeah, and I think it's coming back up right now, and, and up meaning like like back when Robin Rabutu yeah. was doing it. What was that, 20 years ago? Yeah, like in the 80s, 90s, um, climbers were big stars. They were like on the TV, winning cars at comps, and big prices, money, and then like in the new millennium, everything went down. Like right now, if you win a World Cup or a World Championship, you get 3,000 euros. Okay. Which is not nothing. Much. You don't yeah. You cannot live off of that, even if you win all the comps. Um, but there is more and more sponsors involved. Yeah. Yeah. The like yeah, private private sponsors. Private sponsors, um, like from the climbing world, like climbing brand, but also more and more like outdoorsy brands that has mm -hmm. a lot more money and um, like impact in the white public yeah and I'd like to talk about that maybe a little bit more in relation to actually the project that you're here for and we'll give our 
for listeners who've been listening along so far a bit more of an understanding of really what you're doing here. But I just want to just backtrack a little bit, Josh. Um, knowing then what we've said about the climbing world, that a lot of, especially in America, it's like a self-funded pursuit, to leave, I guess, like a fairly steady job and a career opportunity as a tradie and to pursue like a climbing ambition, did you meet uh, doubters or even internal doubt about like that journey or did you just, were you just like again head, head into it and diving straight into the thick of it? Um, it's a good question. It was like, there's like two layers of that. Like the, the first one was like quitting electrical and taking like a more than 50% pay cut and going into climbing and working at a gym. Um, and I think things in my personal life just lined up right. And like the, yeah, it was time to just dive in, like kind of not look back and just go for it and know that no matter what, I could fall back into electrical, you know, Mm -hmm. if things just didn't work out, even though I really didn't want to do that, you know, I didn't want it to come down to that. And I think me not wanting it to come down to that, I, I, I really worked hard to make sure that I was, um, um, giving it your best yeah giving it my best and um, really trying to learn a lot about climbing and so I mean when I first got back into climbing it wasn't like oh yeah I'm a, I'm a pro climber I have sponsors and you know here I am like it was more like I had really had to work for it like I had to um, be a route setter in a gym which is designing routes for customers in, in public gyms um, and I started getting into coaching so I was coaching a youth mm. climbing team um, so those two things were basically like my, my bread and butter for the, for, uh, man, eight years of climbing when I, when I first got back into it, it was like all, all I was doing was trying to improve my skills as a, a tradesman in the climbing industry, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, so now you can be a full-time root setter and have a salary and, you know, have a family as a root setter, same thing as a coach. So, um, I was working in Boston for, yeah, about eight years for Jim um, Metro Rock. And, uh, <laughs> and we were, and I was um, head coach for a little bit and head route setter. Um, and we started this um, competition series called the Dark Horse Series, which has been running for eight years now, mm-hmm. nine years now. And it's got a lot of world traction, people fly in for it. And um, so I, I had my eyes open to a lot of different things. And and throughout all of that, I was trying to improve my own climbing because that's really why I get into it is because I wanted to climb. I wanted to just climb on rocks. I wanted to compete. I wanted to train. I wanted to push myself. But in order to do that, I had to like also sacrifice just being able to live out of the van and do that. I had to climb. I, I had to coach. I had to set mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to make money. Mm-hmm. But then it eventually, like uh, three years ago, well, two years ago, I had to basically make the decision to like quit my job in another level. This is the second layer is like now to not have steady income, not be a coach, not be a setter and just try to be a climber now. And so we've been, I've been doing that for yeah two and a half years now. Um, just kind of living off of my climbing skills and the trades that I picked up and traveling and setting, running youth um, clinics as we travel around. Um, and we do a lot of media work, so we do some like we do a lot of videos and photos, and sponsors pay for that. And, um, but it's like now it's like all these different things I've learned over the eight years of like in climbing that I've been able to just make it um, 
lucrative enough to mm. travel and eat and you know I don't have a lot of overhead so I can um, I don't have to worry about paying too many bills basically yeah I'm, I am like I'm so inspired I just I, I really don't even know where to um, where to go with my questions because I have too many but um, I'm really interested to know that with that freedom to travel the world and again I want to get to what you're doing in a moment but to to travel the world and to live I guess your dream of climbing but knowing that there's a bit of a reliance on performing and producing your media and your writing and your imagery that you're doing and the sponsor keeping the sponsors happy is that also bring a pressure to towards what you do or is that just something that you don't even think about you just do what you do and love it (laughs) (laughs) okay um well as far as in the present um yes we need to produce produce like we need to spend a lot of time behind our computers um we have to contact people produce videos photos um when we're at the cliffs we need to film it's only being the two of us is kind of tricky but uh, it's sure that we have that everyday, those everyday duties, but in the same time, it's nothing compared to going to the office in the morning and spending all day in the office and mm-hmm. that. So we're, it's good balance. We're, we're definitely don't complain. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me then about the World Tour project and what's brought you to Tassie and where you're actually heading after this? Because I, I looked at the list of countries and I... I'm just hoping there's space for me in your in your suitcase to join you. I'll come and film. How's that sound? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yes. great. I'll be your media agent. No, um, and you can teach me to climb better. So I can come to Olympics. Great that sounds great. Um, but yeah, tell me about the the project. Um, yeah. Well, Charlotte was you know a year out from finishing her PhD, and we were like, let's do something cool when you're done with it. Uh, you know, I, we both love traveling. Um, maybe we should go on a road trip in the States. Uh, we, we, we did that like four years ago when we first started dating. That was our dating test. If we could survive a road <laughs> trip together for three months. Well, obviously successful. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm assuming anyway. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. I never slept on the couch or outside of the RV once. <laughs> um, so we're like, okay, we, we checked them, checked off the States. Maybe we should do a road trip in Europe. Oh, but Charlotte's like basically done that already I haven't I've done parts of it well why don't we just do the world we're like what other better time are we going to have to just like not have anything else to do but to like just travel um and of course the first thing that comes with that is like well that's going to be a lot of money it's going to be a lot of time should we take this much time away from our life or is this just part of life and we just just go for it and yeah went went for it (laughs) One day we're like, all right, let's do it. So we started kind of writing down our dream destination, um, obviously for climbing mainly, but also mountaineering, because I used to be a bit of mountaineering when I was younger. And with a competition in school, I've been away from it, so I've been missing it. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to dive a little bit back into it. Um, and we also have some destinations where 
it's just places you have to check out, like the pyramids in Egypt, or and Tasmania, and yeah, <laughs> visit the wombat. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had that long list of places and countries we wanted to go. So we kind of looked at the best. Well, we looked at the not worst period of the year to go, and we kind of made the calendar, and that way the trip would last more than three years. Which we're like, wow, that's cool. But in the same time, that's a lot of time away from, like, our jobs or our, yeah, working adult responsibilities. Yeah. yeah, that. So we're like, all right, let's remove a couple destinations, and now we're gone for about a two years trip um, over all the continents and just, yeah, climbing, um, mountaineering. Uh, one thing that we really wanted to do to experience fully that big journey is to meet the locals. Mm. Um, so with the climbing community really being like absolutely amazing. It's yes, the world is big, but if you're driven by the same passion, like the world becomes super small. So so far in every country we've been going, we've met the locals and climb with them, done things with them, and it was it's really a part of our travel that we really like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two questions, I mean, you can both answer, or um, one can speak for the other, but uh, when you were creating that list, I mean, was there one place that you just that totally made your toes tingle more than anywhere? Mm -hmm. Like you, it was like the pin you thought it might be the pinnacle of this project. Great question. Um, I I don't think so. Do we? Just because, like, Alice climbing wise, there's some very all over the world that every place we cannot wait to go just because it's so special. Um, like here, for example, in Tasmania, we know it's the adventurous destination. Uh, where we're gonna go in South Africa. It's going to be a amazing um, bouldering field where we're just going to try to crush. Um, <laughs> then when we go in Peru, it's going to be Machu Picchu and climbing in a high altitude. And it's like all this, we're like super open into the climbing ways, I'd say, that like every place is super attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the ones that jump out are the ones that are like, hard to get to mm. or the ones that are just like on the opposite side of the earth from where I'm from which is like where we are right now this is like correct answer yes yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it really is like the furthest point yeah. you know like my parents are still in yesterday like you know 16 hours back it's like it's so funny to you know we were the first into the new year over here like it's it's cool to be on this part of the world and mm. I'd never um I don't know when I was ever gonna like book that ticket and come to Australia and New Zealand and Tassie um, all just like on my own you know like this trip kind of was pushed us into just doing it all and not having any excuses to to not go somewhere and so what so far has been maybe the most memorable moment I think you, did you start in Serbia or Greece or some Greece Greece, Greece and then Serbia and then came out towards Australia 
Yeah, so what has been a highlight so far? Greece. <laughs> yeah, Greece. Greece. So that was our first destination last September, and we went there. We stayed in that little village, which is called Kiparisi. And pretty much we were in that little bubble for a month and climbing and developing and clear blue water, like five minute walk from our bedroom. And it was so idyllic. It was like, cannot get any better. Yeah, we, the, after the first week, the, the place we were staying at was a beautiful little like getaway lodge, like only eight rooms. And, mm -hmm. um, it's like right on the water in Cabo Cortia and uh, we were like getting room service and like when you travel as climbers <laughs> you don't get room service you like go as cheap as you can and you know they were so kind they gave us like a killer deal on the whole place like kind of free basically uh, and we were just like this is amazing like these people just opened their arms and welcomed us into their little village uh, with you know no gas station tiny supermarket just beautiful water and beautiful rocks and beautiful people and we just uh, spent a month there and at the end of the month we were like you know we probably should just kind of forget about Greece and not compare it to anything else everything starts in Serbia at the next destination because this is way too good to be true can't believe we're starting here we should have finished here maybe we still will <laughs> <laughs> yes but it was um yeah it was it's not like it was my favorite country it was just like all together everything combined was just like a really good experience yeah and something that we started to do in Greece and that we're trying to do throughout our travels is developing. Like Charlotte was saying, developing earlier. And for those who don't know what developing is, it's basically just like um, for root climbing, it's bolting a root. So you take a drill and you have these battery, uh, a battery car drill and bolts and you, you design roots and you clean the rock and you, and you climb it. And then there's certain areas where it's restricted and there's areas where it's allowed. Uh, so this one cliff that we climbed that was allowed and they really welcomed it as the local climbing community. They were like, put up as many routes as you can. So there's more routes for us and more routes for our guidebook and more routes for tourism. So we spent, you know, our whole time there bolting routes and we put up a few and when you climb the route, you get to name it. So we left our, you know, we can leave our mark around the world as we travel too by developing these routes and they eventually get climbed by others. And, you know, it's um, a special part of, the travel that we're doing we're not just trying to go to the places and send hard routes or or crush we want to do that but we're also <laughs> really excited to put a little bit of us there and then then i guess in turn to yeah like you're saying develop a community around the sport of climbing in these locations and to give them like a leg up into the world that you love so much is that correct yeah yeah and i guess that's why like i reached out to you both when i when I saw these sort of emails coming in actually through the, the business and the, the team in at the retail store because um, you're sponsored by La Sportiva, am I correct? Nope. 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 I'm really incorrect there. <laughs> okay. But I, anyway, I saw these emails coming in and I saw that you were going to be visiting the store and I looked up a little bit on what you were doing and I just I felt like a um, I felt a really strong connection to you both and what you're doing. Because I feel like for us in Find Your Feet, that's the ethos of what we're trying to do as well. It's like, yes, I mean, we're trying to have fun and we're trying to have a living. And ultimately, one day, we'd love to have a, our own roof over our own heads and have a home. But um, at the end of the day, what drives us the most is helping people to get out there and enjoy and experience the things that we are fortunate enough to have experienced. Um, so that, to me, is really awesome. And like... 
that world less traveled that you said that you're on. Uh, that's awesome. Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, two years, 18 countries, six continents. Is that correct? Yeah. Were you tempted to add Antarctica? We looked into it. Okay. And it was about <laughs> half the price of the entire trip cool. to go down there. Okay. No, maybe not half. Maybe it's <clears throat> a quarter of the trip or something. I think both of us round trip was. Oh, yeah, it was about half. It was, yeah. yeah. That's, I think that's a separate travel. It yeah. like, doesn't go on top of the, <laughs> the numbers of this trip. Yeah. But, yeah, we'd like to. Yeah. So, with the the project, is is the de- that development in that we just talked about? Is that the slight, almost charitable aspect of what you're doing, or is there another charitable aspect? Because many adventurers, they you know, they're like, oh, we're doing this to raise awareness for X or Y. Have you? Did you ever think to go down that lines, or did you just really want to follow your own hearts and? Do what you're doing now. Well, we, we did think, well, with your with your PhD, we wanted yeah. to do something about, you know, renewable energy or water filtration, but it just, like... It was too much. We couldn't, we couldn't, like... We could have, maybe, but we just couldn't, in the time frame, come up with a really good, like, honest way to do it. You know, like, a, mm-hmm. a real, like, true, like, this is going to help. Mm-hmm. We were, like, really torn, so... We didn't, um, but, you know, like with the, the development and the bolting and um, reaching out to communities and doing um, slideshows and things like that, a um, little bit of coaching here and there. I think we're, we're sharing, like, things that we've gained as an experience through mm-hmm. climbing and through traveling with other communities. Um, and that's, you know, that's the best we can do at this point right now, I think. And what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, you, you said it good and... I think there are some places where our help will be more valuable in some ways, more useful because, yeah, we go to some places which not a lot of people know about and so we're going to add up to that. And one thing coming to mind is um, we're going to Puerto Rico mm. in next month, actually. It's our next next destination. and. We've been there, Josh has been here for a few years now, and I was there last year, and the community is super happy to have us and come develop and talk about their island and the potential they have. And so we had that destination in mind, and a couple of months ago, they kind of got destroyed by some huge storms. Uh, like, besides the capital, all the island doesn't have electricity, mm. roads are closed with trees falling or landslides. and So we could have been like, ah, right, the island is destroyed, there's no electricity, let's, let's not go because we won't be able to climb as much as we wanted. But no, in the contrary, we even want to go more and help, mm. help not only the climbing community, but like the little village we're staying at. Uh, right now, yeah, they don't have electricity and some houses are still upside down. So we're like, all right, let's go and sacrifice some time from our climbing and just help. Mm. I really love hearing this. I'm I'm not going to mention any names, but when we first opened our little store down here in Hobart, we had a number of keynote speakers come out and one being Tim McCartney Snape, the first Australian to climb Mount Everest and the first or the only man ever to walk from sea level to the highest 
um, point of the world on Mount Everest. So that was a really cool story. We had a couple of other mountaineers and then we had one woman who was cycling alone. Well, actually not alone. She had she did have support, but she cycled around Africa. And she, she took a charitable aspect, but when she told her story, for me it was really clear that underneath all of that she just wanted to ride her bicycle around Africa and I felt like the charitable aspect had become almost a bit forced it was almost at times hard to understand how it quite fitted into the journey that she was on and I I would like when you walked in the door and we were having a brief like chat and getting to know one another you know really um for me has become apparent that we need to line up like our ducks I call it we need to like work out what are our first steps because sometimes you need to just do what you need to do before you can really be available to help on these new levels whether it's environmental or you know on a humanity level and sometimes just being in the right place Puerto Rico at the right time can be enough to make a big difference in people's lives yeah yeah absolutely and like to follow with what you said even more is like we're doing this trip we're getting to actually experience these countries and firsthand see maybe what they actually need, you know, mm-hmm. not not just kind of like guess, oh, maybe they need water or like read online about blogs, you know, they need power or they need climbing shoes yeah. or whatever it might be. But now we can like actually see and feel and hear from the community themselves, whether it's climbing or just general people, what they need, you know, and what they're, yeah. or what they don't need. Yeah. You know? And um, maybe we can feel inspired to go back to, a country and, yeah. and help out in some other way, a bigger way, stay longer. Um, yeah, Graham and I actually had an experience like this last year. Um, we had a very big 2017 and part of it was we travelled to Nepal. Um, we'd come into connection with a very, very amazing guy living up in northern Queensland uh, who was had grown up in a remote village in Nepal and um, we got chatting to him and this village was heavily hit by the earthquakes that went through Nepal a number of years back and we sort of said like how can we help how can our find your feet community and our community of runners help these villages and it was decided that we could collect running shoes because there's been actually more recently a number of very, very good runners coming out of Nepal. I mean, they have an amazing playground to train in and amazing physiology to support it. But um, when these kids get these opportunities they and become better at sports like running, they get picked up by talent scouts and American universities, scholarship opportunities come their way and like it or it might be like to become porters or trekking guides and yeah their worlds can open up and anyway we collected hundreds of shoes and booked our flights and traveled to Nepal and trekked out to this remote village and through a lot of areas that have been hit by these earthquakes and when we got there and we um, unzipped our bags we realized not only were the shoes that we brought like five or six sizes too big if not more in the case of the little kids like barely any of our huge Australian feet shoes were ever going to fit these poor villages but there were so many shoes that had already been donated that were just like sitting in this huge heap in the bottom of this building and then they took us up to see the new orphanage and we were getting shown around and this other Australian who happened to be in the village at the time just took us to the side and he said, have a look at this. 
and we, we looked up to where he was pointing and there was this big beam that was the major beam supporting the entire building. And he goes, that's not supported on anything. If they have another earthquake and this, like, earth shakes beneath this building, this whole building is going to come crumbling down. And if there are kids inside, you know, and it just became really clear that, like, had we already been there, we would have seen that the need was not to bring more shoes that they can't dispose of, that are probably going to end up cluttering up the rivers and the creeks down below the village, but it was to bring education or building knowledge towards this village. Mm. Yeah, so it was a it was a big eye opening experience, and maybe I'm leading into something. But have you yet, and and do you anticipate seeing like the highs of this journey, but also the heartache, and and particularly on the environmental level and the cultural level of some of these places you're going, like you've already mentioned, Puerto Rico are going to be very challenging. I noticed you had Nepal in there, which to me was, I found it a really confronting place. I mean, spectacular, but so many challenges. You just like sometimes don't even know where to start. Like, yeah, just kind of wondering how you, you know, what you're anticipating, what you've seen, how you, how you as individuals deal with that. Cause I, I came home quite, quite broken open, I would say. Good, if you have, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, I, mean, no, I don't really know what to say yet. <laughs> we, I don't know, so far we haven't experienced such, like, heartache or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, like shocking or very... Not poor, because I think, like, we haven't encountered any community in the need mm-hmm. really, of something, like, right? Yeah, I mean, Serbia is about the only place that we've experienced that's more, just the, the, the most different than we've visited so far. Yeah, and yes, mate, like, I probably feel it strongly when you come, you you're just starting out in Tassie and I like talking to you earlier, your first impressions have already been like it is a pretty amazing place. You step out the door and you can be on a mountain and climbing and exploring it pretty easily. But when you, when you leave such a green, beautiful, fairly pristine environment where like the same produce is coming out of our ears down here and you go to places like Nepal and you see these challenges in some of these villages, like, I guess it makes you very grateful for what you have and you realize like the world is a, a big place but a small place <laughs> um, that we have a lot of challenges I think yeah yeah now that you mentioned Serbia it's so I, it was my first time in Serbia just just been last year but I was really impressed in not in a good way not in a bad way how a country that is like in the middle of the European Union but not part of the European Union is so different and how mm. everything is more challenging and the culture was so different. Like we got to encounter the mayor of a little town which had two beautiful gorges on the side, like that would be pretty national part of national park here and one of them is actually not out of both. No, no. Um, and he asked us about our 
point of view or how we could bring more people in and have more people interested in, in outdoor in those beautiful gorges and they were thinking more like um, hotels, restaurants, facilities but in the same time when we went to those gorges like it was a lot of trash like so much trash all over mm. and actually um, this gorge was somehow forbidden for climbers to develop because people that are not climbers think that climbers like make the place dirty by like climbing in the rock or something like that but like culturally it's totally the contrary like as climbers we live in the outdoor we totally respect it we don't, mm -hmm. it's our playground it's kind of where we live so we don't want to arm it in any way and so it was kind of yeah mind-blowing to see to see that their culture was like to not allow climbers to live in here because it would arm the nature but in the same time they're arming the nature yeah. all over and yeah yes yeah like they didn't yeah yeah see that was the biggest thing that hit Graham and I in Nepal was the rubbish and and it's not just Nepal, like when we raced in Ukraine a number of years ago, the only way the World Championships were allowed to be hosted in Kiev in Ukraine was that they had to clean up literal like acres and acres and acres of forest of this rubbish so that it was clean wow. for the competitors. Um, yeah, so, okay, but moving along a little bit, <clears throat> how do you keep your physical bodies functioning just on the go, climbing constantly, uh, and exploring like this. Uh, it's yeah, they crash sometimes. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. what way, actually? I'm curious. Um, yeah, they crash, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we're, on, we're doing something every day. We're going somewhere every day. So it's, you're not reminded to sit down until you have to sit down. Like, I, I got injured in the Grampians. I pulled an oblique. Um, just because we were moving, we didn't bring enough water. I was dehydrated. I pulled an oblique and, uh, it's just like, it was, it was like, oh man, it's kind of a bummer. Like three months into the trip, I'm, I'm injured. I have to sit out for, you know, three, four weeks. Um, but it's like those things kind of remind you like, all right, you got to really take care of your body. You're not just, you're not Bullet untouchable. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like you have to remember to drink water and like, the, the simple things, you know, and, um, I don't know. We, we just, uh, like for, sh for sh Charlotte and I are very different when it comes to climbing. Um, I don't know what training physical. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. yeah sh sh so Charlotte can just climb and be like rad and badass as her. her uh, yeah. Yeah. Her, her uh, yeah. bio shows. Beast. Beast. Yeah. Badass. Beast. Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and me on the other hand, I, I have to like work pretty hard for it. Like I ha like the, when I've been my best at climbing, I put, you know, months into that, you know, month of being really good, whatever, you know. So for me, it's like this trip, I've, I've gone up and down quite a bit. Like, I just get crushed. And then, like, I just, like, I don't know, I get really psyched and, like, try to do a bunch of pull-ups and do some, like, trainings. Like, we have a little board that we bring around we do pull-ups on. And, you know, we try to, we eat pretty healthy, but, like, I just have to, like, really, really focus on training to perform and so that for me that's been the hard struggle 
on this trip and not that the trip's a struggle at all but like <laughs> it's just different you know yeah, it's like yeah. I just have to like lower my expectations and even that's more difficult is accept it and just be like I'm not going to climb on what I think I should I just have to like just enjoy it mm-hmm. and I struggle with it once in a while but like the trip in itself is like you know you, you can't really complain you know like I'm, I'm not allowed to complain about anything <laughs> while I'm on this rad trip so like I just accept it and, and we move on um but we we do a lot of like computer time you know like we, we uh I do a lot of video editing and so that's kind of like our downtime it's forced downtime because we have deadline to get this video out or this blog out that Charlotte's writing so we're like okay today we're gonna rest and we're gonna just sit in front of the computer we're gonna maybe go for a walk have lunch and then sit in front of the computer again and just get our work done and I think that's good for our bodies to just mm. like yeah, we, we had to figure out because, like, in the past, when we would go on a climbing trip, it was like, for me, it was max two weeks, maybe you a bit more. But yeah, you will like train, linking up to it. And then once you're in your climbing destination, you just climb and try your hardest and yeah, just climb. But now we're like on the road, we're climbing, we're mountaineering sometimes. We just, uh, climbed the mountain in uh, New Zealand. We didn't climb for like, two weeks. Um, we have to do those editing. We do other things like when we develop, it takes a lot of climbing skills. You keep the big muscle physics because it's very physical to develop. But climbing wise, it's yeah, it's not as good as we're used to. So we had to. Understand it and adapt to it and be like, all right, we won't be like we used to be and we won't be like all those climbers that gone rot and climbing trip just to crash. Uh, well, that's different. Yeah, that, okay, I can see it. It's a different psychology, but I, I imagine maybe my brain, if I'd been planning that trip or your trip at the beginning, would have been like, yeah, I'm climbing every day or I'm running every day. I'm going to be like a beast by the end of it. But... But you know, what you're saying is that you've lost, I guess, some of your routines and your support networks and that stability that you have when you are in a home environment and it's harder for you to perform. Yeah. Yeah. The keyword is routine. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Because yeah. are you a creature of routine, Charlotte? I was actually going to ask that question earlier when we were talking about like balancing the studies and the training and the performance. Like I can imagine you have to be fairly organized and in control, in quotation marks. Yeah. Is, is that correct? Oh yeah, totally. It's um, well when you're in school or when you have a job. When I did my PhD, it felt more like a job. But uh, you're there from let's say nine to seven or six seven p.m. and then you get to train. So for myself, it was like pretty much three hours in the gym. Um, I have the luck, or maybe it's just because I'm. That's the way I've always grown up that I don't need to spend many hours in the gym to train, to climb. So three hours a day is not many hours? Or so that would be like three hours, maybe four days a week, which okay. is nothing compared to a lot of people. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, but just because I've, like, I've known with cool and with that timing that I didn't have time to just 
play around. So whenever I'm at the training, I'm at the training and I do that and try to be the most efficient as possible. Mm. And like there was a certain period of my life which was really hard and we would probably not do it again. It was like we call that class prépa. So it's like intensive classes that prepare you to enter engineer school. So it was like at school between eight and seven Oh and then gosh. I had my training at 8.30, so I had just time to go back home, eat a little something. I would come back at my 11, and then I had homework, so I would work two hours and go to bed at 1, wake up at 7. That was, that was pretty horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but in the same time, it taught me that efficiency and really have to be into what you're doing if you want to just keep it together yeah I'm loving this conversation because again I just feel so many parallels with you both and a similar um, experience from myself is that in the sport of orienteering in Australia it's just really hard to get access to the best terrain like we have good stuff but then you don't have the competitors to to be with and then when you get to Europe it's just so different again and so to fly over from Australia and I was at medical school through a lot of my um, years as an elite competitor and I, I wouldn't have the luxury of like months and months to go over and prepare and the Europeans spend like so much time in this terrain learning how it is and the way the forests are and how to navigate and yet we'd arrive like one maybe two weeks before and it was a bit like what you're saying it's just like all in 100% focused on what you do no room for error just 100% discipline and then get out of it and I found that actually for me, that was an amazing asset in, in the way to learn how to train like that because you're not, you don't get into the bumble, the bumbling mm-hmm. mode, and you, you don't let these kind of like groundswell of laziness or just kind of complacency build up in your sport because you're you're so involved in it. And these Europeans, like spending so much time in the forest. I felt like sometimes I wondered if they were actually consolidating mistakes or like like just bad habits that they didn't even realize they had. Yeah. yeah. So actually, like, loving this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but Josh, what's your approach to training then? Like, if, maybe go back to when you are in a routine and at home. Um, I guess I was. I would train about five days a week, and I guess it would be. Um, up to like 24 hours a, a week of the training so that could be spread out between two sessions a day or one long session a day um, I would always feather in cardio for it's not just all about strength yeah I was gonna and, ask that so uh, for for climbing it's it's quite awesome how like you have to you know you want to be strong um, you, you want to be you want to have power you want to have strength you want to have flexibility um, you want to have uh, you know, like good cardio and, and things like that. So um, there was a, there's a lot of moving pieces, so you can always train. I felt like you could always train something. And uh, for me, after experimenting with some things, I, I would just train for basically uh, like a 24-week cycle, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, like 18 to 24-week mm-hmm. cycle. And, and um, they were in chunks of six weeks, and I would just intensify each each week and they would just repeat themselves and I would just push harder each cycle. So uh, for me, it was like kind of self-taught. Like I read a lot of books about climbing training 
and those really put a good foundation. But then it's like you really have to find what you're bad at. You have to find out what you're good at, what you need to work on. And, you know, like your your weaknesses are the things you don't like to do, you know, and, and climbing. There's like, you know, there's things that are just uncomfortable positions you have to put yourself in or uncomfortable holes to grab and you have to train those. So um, for me, for throughout most of my training was focused for competition and it was for bouldering. So not, not root climbing, it was for, for bouldering. So I, I, for a couple years, I messed with it and figured out what worked best for me. And then I had a, a great um, chance to uh, coach a climbing team, a youth climbing team of all ages from six years old to 19 years old. And then I also coached a couple of university teams in Boston. So I was also implementing this style of program that I was using for myself on all of these, you know, climbers. Hang on, implementing or experimenting? Well, you know, I like to say guinea pigs, but no, yeah. it was, it was like, I had already kind of figured out what worked, but it really is, you know, climbing so, um, it's like you, it's just you. Yeah. And it's different for everybody. You know, yeah. everybody has different yeah. flexibility and different natural finger strength. And um, so for, you know, to implement the same thing to everybody, I didn't do that. It was very like, here's what, here's like the, the, the rough, um, you know, you should be working on power this week. Oh, well, what kind of exact exercises? Well, it's like you kind of, here's some exercises. You make them up as you go, but the goal is power this week. And, um, I don't know. It's it's a huge conversation. Honestly, I'm kind of like right. jumping around, but oh, you understand right. with the coaching oh, yeah. and yeah. So, um, yeah, for me, it was just trying to figure out what worked best for me, and I think a lot of people have to do that. Like, same for Charlotte. She has yeah. to figure out what works best for her training. And the more you do it, and the more you fail, the more you learn, and <laughs> maybe you'll win sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> and I found with my own coaching that coaching was. One of the things that actually helped me to rapidly improve when I came back into like the elite orienteering ranks over the last three years was to have to sort of describe what you do and to watch others make similar mistakes to what you've done. It, it kind of not only heightened what you knew about your sport, but it also heightened your own discipline because you, you couldn't go out and tell these young athletes, don't do this and then you go out and you do exactly that like right. you really had to kind of I guess like be a bit stronger within yourself and yeah yeah okay absolutely so where did where like actually if I was to ask you um what recovery means to you both maybe what what comes to mind cheeseburger no. <laughs> no, I have to say that's very American to say. So, no recovery. Um, rest, stretch. Right, that's a good answer. What's, what's what do you for do me, for recovery? For me, um, it'd be just yeah, rest, like downtown, um, stretch, grow up. Like if I feel, you learn to know your body over the years, so you know that. All right, if one day you try to be too hard on your right shoulder, then you'll stretch your right shoulder a bit more. Um, when I travel, um, I used to really enjoy doing like easy hikes to like just do some, not push myself because that's not resting, but easy hikes, I'll get for, go for a little picnic and just, yeah, totally 
downtown where your head is nowhere but just enjoying yourself and your time. And mm, just being outside and yeah, just happy. I wanted to say happy, like just doing things you love doing and yeah. keep the body moving a little and yeah, yeah. That that's the ideal. Yeah, but yeah. I like your version of recovery. <laughs> yeah, Josh, what about for you? Um, very very similar. Um, I went through a, a big stage of trying to understand nutrition and how that helped with yeah. recovery. And for me, with uh, you know. If, train for six hours in a day it's you're going to be depleted and you need to um you know get that system up and running for the next training session so i learned a lot about like what my body needed to eat and recover to help that recovery um what did that involve out of curiosity it's been a while <laughs> as far as like the food itself. yeah do you like do you, do you have a philosophy around nutrition for sport now? Um, not really. I like. I really. I believe that everybody's different. Everybody needs to figure out what works for them. And reading a book is going to help guide you, but it's not going to tell you exactly. You know, eat that amount of chickpeas and put this in your salad and cut the fat off your meat and. Like, there's so many different ways to go about it. And I think um, I like experimenting and figuring out what works. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to do that rather than to do what other things might suggest. It is quite refreshing to hear two incredibly elite athletes being that grounded around that topic of conversation. It is, I find it is quite an uncomfortable conversation to bring up, even in the podcast. Because I think there's just so much hype out there now about like paleo, plant-based, ketogenic, like, (laughs) and it's so hard to wade your way through all that. I find like if you, the human body at the end of the day is like a machine and it's, it's grounded in science and and a little bit of philosophy around there. But I feel like if you know the science, then you can experiment out from that and find what works for you. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I just have a couple more questions and then I, I really know that I want you guys to be out there and enjoying Tazzy. So we're going to enjoy the conversation. Cool. Awesome. Um, what you do, I think from a lot of us looking in from the outside and I've only just begun to dabble in climbing, love it, mind mm-hmm. you, but there is a, an element of fear always associated with well, from us looking in from the outside, like of risk and risk and reward on the climbs and what you do, particularly I guess on the higher lead climbing elements and placing new routes. And I just wonder how you, whether you experience fear, um, and if you do, how you actually work through that emotion. Um, do you get scared, child? I I do get scared. <laughs> I do get scared because sometimes you're in positions where you know if you fall it could be bad it could be really bad it honestly doesn't happen that often uh, especially in lead climbing because we get all those protections um, but pretty recently we experienced uh, climbing in the ground pins and the protections didn't seem like they were here to protect you they're like super spaced out so pretty much um 
to put it in a nutshell, when you're lead climbing, you have those anchors in the wall and you have a rope tied to you and while you climb, you put your rope in the anchors and you keep going up and up. So you're not attached from the top, you're attached from the bottom. Um, is that clear? Perfect. Yeah, cool. it's perfect. <laughs> and so at some point you're kind of above your last anchor, like your feet can be above it. So if you fall, you like fall for a couple meters. And yeah, what we experienced in the Grampians is those anchor were we spaced out and like I was there were some points where I was in the middle of the cliff, which is pretty high up, at like twenty meters, and I knew that if I fell, I would probably be on the ground. Uh, so th those are situation, crazy situation, um, and scary. <laughs> yeah. um, but you just like go through it. I've bailed when I didn't feel it. Like sometimes you just don't feel it, so you don't do it. I'd say as far as like lead climbing, that's where I would get scared. I also get scared in bouldering. So mm. bouldering is when you climb rocks up to like let's say five meters is an average, be yeah. less more. And average. you don't have a protection. Your only protection is big, big crash pads. Um, so it's like mattress below you. So if you fall, you don't fall on the ground. You fall on those mattresses and. Even if you have your friends below you to like kind of spot you, we say. So if you fall, it will like kind of carry you and put you nicely on the floor. Um, there's always risk of like spraining your ankle or falling on the side of the mattress. Mm. Or that's I think like climbing wise, that's where I get the most scared, and I'm actually scared. Like there's a lot of boulders that I just don't climb because I I'm scared. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that's fine, you know, there's there's just so much to do in the places we go in, in the world that it's, uh, to me it's not worth just pushing these kind of limits because mm -hmm. we have just so much to do around. <laughs> so like it's, hard, it's, it's hard to identify that push, right? Like it's like, all right, here I am, I have a decision, like, am I just being a sissy? Should I just go <laughs> and like do this? Or is this a really bad choice? And it's like, how do you know? You know, like I think the experience that uh, you gain through those decisions and the years of climbing and all that and reading about stories like helps you make those decisions. But um, I think it's never horrible to bail. Mm. You know, um, kind of use your gut. You know, if you there's always a way out, kind of thing. There's always a solution. It's good sometimes to be humbled by mm. <laughs> the what you're doing in the environment around you and um, Dale my friend who I was telling you about and I'd love you to meet him while you're down here uh, we were out at Frenchman's Cap which is like a, I mean it's a beautiful hike but when you add like running it in a day it kind of becomes a bit more epic and he wasn't feeling it as in your words he wasn't feeling it one day and I knew he'd be disappointed but when we talked about it later he said like Sometimes it's just really good to be humbled and to remind you, A, why you love it, but B, that you have to kind of stay on your A game and prepared if you're going to do silly adventures. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I really think um, today has just opened my eyes to a whole new world. I, like, envious is um, 
Envious doesn't even describe, I think, the journey that I imagine others are also feeling as we hear about what you're doing with the World Tour Project. I'm stoked that you came to Tassie. I'm stoked that I got to meet you both. Um, I will definitely, in our show notes for all the listeners, put up your website and links to the video, the doco. You're making a full documentary on your journey. Is yep. that correct? Each destination, yeah, our country destination that we go to, uh, gets. Uh, we're doing a just a destination film we call it. So um, interviews with locals, interviews about our time there, um, the beautiful landscapes we see, uh, everything. Yeah, and okay. uh, on top of that, we're also doing um, vlogs. So they're like video blogs uh, weekly with Epic TV. So it kind of is like the weird, funky behind the scenes, us being goofy, us like falling asleep, just being just, natural. Yeah, just <laughs> being more natural, you know, just like being less like, just relaxed. Yeah. And it's kind of a, we've grown a little bit of a following and um, we, we have fun with it. And, Brilliant. Um, so yeah. It's, I will put links for everyone listening <laughs> to these. So um, Josh, Charlotte, thank you so much. And uh, I'm really looking forward to following the journey. Thanks so much for having us. It's a pleasure.